It's Wednesday, October 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Manufacturing and supply chain issues continue to affect most industries. And if you're remodeling your kitchen or buying new appliances, you might want to prepare for some delays. Some people have had to wait months, and in extreme cases, a year, to get the appliances they ordered. To get by, some are using loaners from appliance stores or even doing dishes in the bathtub. Austin Hufford, manufacturing reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for all the appliance delays. Next, President Biden's numbers have not been improving much, and it seems to be the very thing he promised to fix, the pandemic, that's dragging him down. While there have been some really bad headlines with Afghanistan and immigration, the pandemic looms large as people experience fatigue with continued regulations. Christopher Catalago, White House reporter at Politico, joins us for why Democrats are worried that Biden can't shake the pandemic. Finally, Facebook and Instagram have been under a lot of scrutiny after a whistleblower leaked internal documents about what the social media giant knows about how toxic Instagram can be to teen girls. In response, Instagram is working on new features to help them take a break and nudge them away from harmful content. Kim Lyons, deputy news editor at The Verge, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. They still want to buy appliances. They're repairing their appliances. They're getting new ones. Whatever it is, demand for appliances remains high. And so if you have demand that's really high and the supply chain is constrained, what the end result is, is there's delays of months or sometimes even years. Joining us now is Austin Hufford, manufacturing reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Austin. Definitely. Let's talk about appliances and delays that are going on right now. Obviously, we've been talking about this a lot on the podcast. You know, supply chain issues due to the pandemic have kind of been wreaking havoc all over the place. But uh, narrowing things down, let's talk about appliances. And you wrote an article about how, you know, people that have taken the time to start remodeling throughout the pandemic, work on their houses, order new things, only to find out that there's months-long delays in getting some of the appliances. In some cases, I guess there was a person that bought a refrigerator. It took over a year for them to get the refrigerator, and they're having to find creative ways to kind of go without it, borrowing other models from appliance stores. It's, it's pretty crazy. So, Austin, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? The reality is, is that it's really, really hard to find certain products right now, and appliances seems to be at the forefront. You know, when I speak to appliance sellers or appliance manufacturers, they tell me that whether it's because of the resins or the foams that certain appliances need, whether it's because of the steel, the computer chips, if you think about all the different parts that go into an appliance, it's difficult to find them at different times. And so what that means is that there's just not enough of them being made, and yet demand is still really high. Is that right now people are still spending, they still want to buy appliances, they're repairing their appliances, they're getting new ones. Whatever it is, demand for appliances remains high. And so if you have demand that's really high and the supply chain is constrained, what the end result is, is there's delays of months or sometimes even years. One of the interesting things that, I mean, I didn't really know that this kind of happened, maybe for some smaller appliance stores and all that, but, you know, they're starting to have to lend out other appliances, kind of the apology tour of things, right? They're saying, I'm so sorry, it's taking so long. Borrow this lesser brand or this cheaper model in the meantime. And that's kind of what they're having to resort to. One appliance seller told me he feels like he's running a lending library. You know, that's how many appliances he has lent out to his customers. 
And the reality, I think, is that, you know, if you want any model, if it, you know, there are going to be refrigerators and washing machines and dishwashers, you, you know, they do have them available, but they aren't necessarily going to be the right size or the right color or the right model. And so if you're willing to spend whatever and accept whatever they give you, you could fix this problem tomorrow in many cases. But if you're trying to make your kitchen be the kitchen that you, that you want perfectly or, or, or make sure that it, if it's only a 35-inch space, you're fitting that exactly, that's where the issue runs into is because we just don't have enough kind of insight to be able to match demand perfectly at this point. Right. You know, you talk to a couple people that were doing just that, going through kitchen remodels. It's taking months. It's taking extra months to get those appliances and they're having to do dishes in the tub in some cases, you know, making little makeshift kitchens out of uh, hot plates and whatnot. And, you know, that's kind of what they're doing to pass the time really until their appliances get in. Right. I mean, that, that's kind of the hilarious part of this whole situation is that you, know, you don't really think very much about your kitchen sink or your dishwasher until you don't have them. Right. And so I talked to this one couple who, you know, right now, I think they have a little hot plate in their in the microwave in their bedroom. And so the husband wakes up and makes bacon in the bedroom, kind of disturbs the wife and apparently it smells all day. <laughs> and then at the end of the day, they take all of their dishes and they go to their bathtub because their kitchen and their dishwasher were out of commission for several months during this process. And so literally they're in their master, beautiful bathtub and they're doing the dishes in it because that's the only option they have at this point. And, you know, continuing on all these appliances, right, you know, so some of these specialty sizes, things, those things might be really tough to find. On the flip side, too, you know, it might be even easier to find some more expensive appliances and some of the cheaper ones. I, I think TVs figure into this uh, category as well. So another situation is that these appliance manufacturers or the electronic manufacturers, they say, okay, we can only make so many appliances or so many TVs this year. Let's make sure we're making ones that are going to be the most profitable or that, gonna, that are going to be able to, to meet the demand. And so it seems like there's sort of a shift happening where these companies are kind of choosing to sell pricier models at the expense of cheaper models. And so it might be a little bit easier to find a model that might cost a little bit more than the one that might cost a little bit less. An appliance uh, dealer uh, here in Chicago, where I am, said that this is the first time he can remember that the price of a TV has gone up. He says that for 20 years, every year, the price goes down. But right now, the price is actually going up because of the supply chain issues. Austin Hufford, manufacturing reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Millions of Americans are realizing that Joe Biden and the radical left have brought our nation to the brink of ruin. There's never been anything like what has happened. Joining us now is Christopher Catalago, White House reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Christopher. Of course. Thank you. Let's talk about the Biden presidency right now. Approval numbers are not doing so well, and Democrats are starting to sound alarms a little bit on uh, why his numbers haven't been improving. Uh, everybody kind of has come to the consensus that the pandemic, it's just stretching on too long. People are tired of the ongoing closures and restrictions and all that. And uh, it's affecting him. And, you know, obviously the trickle down effects, it affects other parts of the agenda as well. So Christopher, what are we seeing with all this? Yeah. So we aim to take a look at just what was behind this plunging number, really, uh, almost 15 points just over the last couple months for Joe Biden. And part of it has to do with 
the fact that he came into office, he hit all the low-hanging fruit that he could, did a lot of executive orders, passed the American Rescue Plan, which was the sort of COVID relief money that they freed up early in the year. And then since then, it's been, frankly, a lot of bad headlines. There was the Afghanistan pullout, which was very chaotic and then ended up being deadly. There have been issues at the border, obviously the latest one being involving Haitian migrants. But there's also been this resurgence of Delta, which has really been a huge factor for people when they look at whether the Biden administration is meeting its promises. And, you know, they've tried to step it up, increase these mandates, looked at a number of other things, but you have to go back and see that they also hope that they could win people over sort of through voluntary action and education programs. But there's still this fairly large number of unvaccinated people in the country, and that's allowed the virus to continue out there. And it's had major impacts on the economy, as you noted. We looked at some focus grouping where a woman in Pennsylvania, a Democrat, told them she was upset because she went to the car dealership and the supply chain issues have made that difficult. Other folks talking about just normal everyday things in life, like being able to go to a restaurant. We know how understaffed a lot of restaurants have been hospitality industry, hotels, different things like that, folks who have to work on the front lines of this, who have been uh, either uh, working in the medical field, emergency field, all kinds of other jobs who have, who have kind of been through this slog. And I think all of this is reflecting on Joe Biden at this point. One of the big slides, obviously, we're seeing it with Republicans, we're seeing it with Democrats too, but independent voters, which is always that key thing that you need, we're seeing that slide with them as well. You know, it's not that they're saying they regret voting for Joe Biden or that they had wished they had voted for Donald Trump. That's really not appearing either in the focus groups or the polling that we reviewed, some of the memos that have been circulating through the White House. It's the fact that they're disappointed that things have not improved to the level that they thought they would. People's attention spans, as you noted, are not long, especially with this virus going on well over a year now. And they just expected things to be better by this point now. Biden, what I was going to mention, has been very focused on passing these two massive bills, this uh, infrastructure bill and this social safety net bill in the trillions of dollars. And that's what a lot of the headlines in Washington have been, as well as averting this debt ceiling crisis that they did, which will come up again in December. And so we had some data in our in our piece about how some folks, some Democratic consultants believe that this huge focus that Biden has had on these plans has given the impression to some Americans that he's taken his eye off the ball on COVID. We're already getting closer to the midterm elections. You know, this is we're halfway through the Biden presidency, but the midterms are coming up and everybody's going to start campaigning pretty soon. And that's kind of the next big hurdle, too. That's the next big hurdle. Gallup did a huge study of past presidents going back decades and decades. And one of the key parts about, well, why does all this matter? You know, why does the story in October of 2021 about Biden's approval rating matters? Well, it matters because getting back up to that 50% approval number um, has been seen as very crucial, 50 or above, um, in terms of how it's going to impact on the uh, candidates running for the House and Senate in the 2022 midterms. I mean, Biden may not be a huge driver for folks out to the polls, but he could represent a drag for Democrats. And so I think that's another aspect. We're seeing it right now at this moment in the uh, governor's race in Virginia with Terry McAuliffe, who's trying to make this comeback bid. He's the former governor and he's running 
in that November race. And one of the things he's been saying is Democrats have this bipartisan infrastructure bill, which technically they could have passed quite a while ago, but it's being held up in order to uh, try to pass both that bill and the social spending one. And so there's a lot of nervous folks out there that are saying you need to take the opportunity, seize the opportunity right now and pass what you can, particularly the folk Democrats in Virginia who want who want to win that race. And then there's a whole other aspect of this, which we don't dive deeply into in this story, which is Donald Trump and the Republicans. And I think aside from Biden's own popularity, aside from solving the virus, getting things under control and trying to get the economy back up and running, there's this aspect of what are Republicans doing? How are they running their campaigns? And I think the third piece for Democrats is really to put the focus on Republicans, you know, ask voters whether they feel like Republicans are too extreme to govern, you know, should they have the House back? Should they win these Senate seats and take the Senate back? And so I think a lot of this is going to be a referendum on that question, a referendum on Donald Trump, who we've seen now back out having his first uh, rally over the weekend in Iowa. And all of that is going to factor in a major way in these midterms. Christopher Catalago, White House reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Of course. Thank you. Where our systems see that a teenager, a teen, is looking at the same content over and over again, and it's content which may not be conducive to their well-being, we will nudge them to look at other content. Joining us now is Kim Lyons, Deputy News Editor at The Verge. Thanks for joining us, Kim. Oh, thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about Facebook and Instagram. They've been under a lot of scrutiny very recently after a whistleblower uh, testified to Congress, leaked a lot of documents also to the Wall Street Journal, talking about how Facebook knows that Instagram is bad to teen girls and they're really only only out there for themselves and the money. Pretty obvious thing. But we're seeing a, a Instagram Facebook vice president of global affairs, Nick Clegg, saying that they're going to be rolling out some new features to Instagram to hopefully help teens get away from harmful content. So, Kim, what are we hearing from them? So this is something that when Frances Haubin, the whistleblower, when uh, the documents that she provided uh, to the Wall Street Journal for their report, massive reporting that they've done on this behind the scenes of Facebook, especially this issue with Instagram and teenage girls and how the content may be toxic. When these stories first started coming out, this was last week of September, you know, there was a couple of blog posts and Adam Mosseri, who's the head of Instagram, made reference to some tools that Instagram was working on. They were exploring. They weren't really committing to, you know, a timeline or anything like that, but said that they were exploring a take a break feature where, you know, it would somehow summon the teen or whoever was using Instagram to take a break if they had been on for a long period of time. Um, And the other one was, you know, the idea of sort of nudging someone who's maybe been looking at a piece of content for a long time or a certain type of content over and over, that they would nudge them toward something else. Now, you know, Nick Clegg has been going on a lot of the talk shows to sort of defend Facebook and say, you know, we don't deliberately, you know, put forth harmful content. And he was pretty careful how not to use the word harmful. You know, the way that he phrased it was that if, if a teen is you know, looking at content over and over and it's content which may not be conducive to their well-being, we'll nudge them to look at other content. You know, and then you know, Facebook <laughs> wanted to sort of parse words a little bit there. You know, I, I heard from some, some people at Facebook saying, you know, that's, we just want to diversify the content teens are looking at and help people become more aware. But you know, when you say content which may not be conducive to their well-being, I mean, he said this on, on CNN on Sunday, that's pretty 
clear that they're aware that there's at least something wrong with the, with the content that's being served to teenagers, specifically teenage girls, right. which has really been kind of the topic of discussion. And what does the implementation of something like that look like? These are simple fixes, really, it seems like, with not too much meaning behind them. I mean, you know, a lot of what the Wall Street Journal was reporting and, and some of these leaked documents was a lot about social comparisons, right? So girls yeah, looking at right. models and lifestyles and feeling bad about themselves. So, I mean, you look at too many Instagram models and that's, they're going to tell you to stop looking at that. I mean, that's like, you know, everybody that's scrolling through yeah. feeds. I mean, that's kind of almost yeah. everything, you know, so it's right. confusing to see how they're going to really implement that. And uh, I think you guys noted in a, a statement from them, they're not in the testing mode of anything yet, right? They don't really have something rolled out just yet. You know, they didn't really give any specifics about, you know, what's it going to look like? What kind of content, if you're going to nudge them away from certain kinds of content, what, what are you going to nudge teens toward? Like, it's interesting because there's, you know, there's other apps that do this. Like TikTok has a, you know, will kind of nudge you off if you've been on for a while. There's, other apps can do this. It's possible for apps to do this. And, you know, in, in countries like in China, for instance, they've put in place social media roles for younger people, you know, that they're only allowed a certain amount of, uh, on social media during the day and a certain times of day, you know, clearly we don't want to you know, go to those kinds of extremes. But it's possible for companies to do this. How this will get implemented, whether it's something that will be, you know, is a teenager going to uh, listen to a prompt and say, hey, you've been looking at this content a long time. Maybe look at this and say, you can't really control the user behavior completely. So there's really not a clear timeline when they're going to roll these tools out. They're going to roll them out just to younger users, if it's going to be to all users. So there's not a lot of specifics. I think they're trying to just highlight that we're doing something. What that's going to look like, when they're going to do it, it's still you know, not clear. They haven't really given a timeline. Tell me a little bit more about Frances Haugen, because she's getting a lot of play. Obviously, she is the Facebook whistleblower. She testified mm -hmm. before Congress. She's going to testify before the Independent Oversight Board for Facebook. So yeah, at least they're acknowledging all this and you know, maybe some more action coming soon. But uh, you know, what's going to happen when she testifies before them? I don't think it's necessarily considered testimony because they're not like a legal body. They're basically an advisory board. Um, they're supposed to be independent of Facebook and their decisions are binding, but they don't really have any legal authority or anything like that. So they were described as a meeting. You know, she said she had been accepted an invitation to meet with the oversight board to brief them about what she learned while she was working with Facebook. And, you know, she tweeted this out the other day, the quote that Facebook has lied to the board repeatedly. And I'm looking forward to sharing the truth with them. Now the board put out a statement and said, uh, in recent weeks, you know, all this new information about Facebook's approach to content moderation has come to light. And, you know, they weren't specific about any incident in particular they were looking at or they were concerned about, but that they wanted to discuss her experiences, gather information that may help push for greater transparency and accountability. Now, it's not really clear. This may be more for information gathering purposes for the board, but this is a, a board that potentially has a good deal of authority over Facebook. And, Someone said to me earlier, it's sort of interesting that she took this approach to bluntly say that, you know, that Facebook has lied to the board. In that case, there's potential for questions about in what capacity are they, are they not being truthful? This is a publicly traded company. You know, I don't think anyone has you know, suggested that they've lied to investors or anything of that nature. But, you know, I think she's sort of raising that flag that you know, this is, there's a potential for misleading people that is becoming sort of a pattern of behavior right. as far as she has seen it. Kim Lyons, Deputy News Editor at The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.